it's the beginning of 2024 and I don't know if I've done one like around an actor or, or something like that, but I was on YouTube late last year, right before the holidays. And I found this interview uh, as a recommended video and it was an interview with Peter Hyams and it was from like nine years ago, 10 years ago. If you don't know who Peter Hyams is, he's a filmmaker, he's a writer, director, cinematographer who had a really interesting run of films in, you know, in the seventies through the eighties, the nineties. And more recently, I don't think has done well, I'll talk about, I guess, the last film that I know that he's done. But the line of questioning, it was a kind of a long form conversation, is from this channel DP30, which um, in the interview, he goes into some of his background, some of his filmography. And there is a point where the, fil- the, the, the interview itself takes a little bit of a turn and he he kind of talks himself down like as a, as a filmmaker as a talent it was it was intriguing because here's someone who has had success who has done multiple films in you know real hollywood settings it it kind of i don't know it kind of struck a chord with me because it's something that if you're looking at someone and and part of the interview was he was kind of reflecting on things and to say well i don't see my work as on the same level of people, let's say, of that generation, right? But they're still legitimate films. They're not half-assed films. I mean, I could tell you the ones that I had seen just off the top of my head as I was going through his IMDb. You know, I'd seen Running Scared. I saw that when I was a kid growing up. And it was a strange film at the time because it was like before Lethal Weapon. I think it was before Lethal Weapon. It was before like the buddy comedy really, really took off. I think the only thing before that would have been like 48 hours. So that was a really, and the cast, I mean, it was Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. It was like a comedian and a dancer. And they're playing two uh, like undercover cops, basically. 2010, the sequel to 2001, which, you know, I think everybody can agree. It's not the same kind of film in terms of the filmmaking, uh, the vision of it, it's different. Uh, you could say it's not as good, or you could say 2001 is untouchable, and why would they make a sequel? Well, I mean, it was based on a book. So Arthur C. Clarke made a sequel. I think he made three sequels to 2001, if I remember right, because I remember reading 2061, and I think he made a 3001. So... um you know, they were going to make the movie one way or another. And, and I think that's even in the interview that I'm talking about where he, he kind of denied or not denied. He um, turned it down. And I think he even says that in the interview or maybe it was a different interview, but he originally even turned it down himself. He's like, no one can make a sequel to 2001, but same logic applies. It's like, well, somebody's going to end up making it. So maybe I, uh, maybe I should be the one to take a stab at it. And, um, I got to say personally, I like 2010. I don't think it's a bad film. I think there are some elements that don't hold up because, you know, a big part of the film, of course, is there's this, uh, 
Well, it takes place in 2010 and the Cold War is still going on. And of course, we know like that's not really how that worked out. You know, but you could say that about 2001, too. Right. There are elements of it that either didn't turn out to happen by the year 2001. Like <laughs> nobody's been beyond the moon and we're in 2024 now. So, you know, we can't really say that film predicted the future either. So 2010, it's not as good of a film, of course. I think anybody would reasonably agree to that. But it doesn't mean it's not a good film. So I give it credit. I, it, it's up there for me. I remember seeing Stay Tuned when that came out because the, I, I feel like the, the whole premise, the hook of it all was that it's a... It's, I guess, like a comedy thriller, but it's also got like animated parts of it. And it was like a big send up of like TV culture, if I remember right. Where these characters are kind of bouncing from sitcoms to cartoons to all these weird, random situations that are like living in the universe of television itself. It's, it's kind of a high concept thing when you think about it. The execution is not exactly, you know, I don't know if it really finds the right tone because I feel like it's kind of weird and scary, but also supposed to be funny and like absurd. And, I, you know, I just have a very distant memory of it at this point, but I do remember seeing it. And, you know, more recently, I guess at the end of the 1990s, I saw end of days, which I, you know, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he's doing a very different, he's doing a horror movie and he's not a big action hero in it, even though it does have some big action scenes and stunts, but it's not that kind of movie. It's dark. It's weird. It's scary. The thing I took away from it though, was it was the first time I really noticed like, Oh, wait, there's a real distinct like visual style that's going on with Peter Hyams work. And I'll talk about that in a second, but you know, the next film that I remember seeing was the relic. And that of course it like reinforced because I saw the same kinds of elements visually and, and cinematically. And it occurred to me, it's like, wait, I, I like the way these films look and the way they're put together. Even if the film or the, like the, the story, let's say, or maybe the performance of somebody or something is not really working for me, but I can watch this film. Like it's just, I, it's just some, I personally, it just fits my personal taste, I guess. So I really started to back up and look at like, what is it about these films? And when I get into these other films that were new to me that I had to go and find and, and kind of discover for the first time, um, it started to really bring it into focus, like what it is. And it really is just a, a visual cinematic style. And for me, I guess, because that was the era when I, uh, more or less like took notice and really started paying attention to films. I guess that's the thing that I'm kind of stuck with. Like that's the thing that appeals to me, right? That's the thing that looks like a film to me. 
And to kind of break it down and, you know, I, I don't know necessarily all of the terminology or, you know, but I, I know enough to say like a lot of it is based on shooting scenes, shooting actors, staging things, either with like long lenses and with a lot of smoke in the room or in the, in the settings and a lot of like striking lighting, like side lighting or top lighting. So it gives a real distinct profile. And, and a lot of times things are backlit. So you'll see actors or characters or subjects or whatever lit from behind. So you see silhouettes and only a hint of who they are. I mean, of all the films that I just mentioned that I've already seen, The Relic is probably the best and worst example <laughs> because it goes so hard with that style that it, there are moments, there are whole scenes of that film where it's entirely too dark to really understand what is happening. And I'm sure that's by design. I don't, it's not an accident. But for me, it comes down to, well, if I can't understand what's happening as a viewer, as, a, as the audience, then that may not be the right approach. Because you are there as a filmmaker or as an actor or, or a writer, director, you're there to tell the story. And if the audience can't understand what's happening, you're not telling the story. You're just having things happen. So the relic was one where I, I found I was able to kind of isolate what I like about it, like the style. But you can also see it's a double edged sword is like it can backfire and then you you get so lost in your vision of it that maybe it hurts being able to actually convey what's happening in the scene. To get across emotion, to get across thoughts, like the internal dialogue or, or, or that kind of thing that's happening for a performer, you've got to be able to see the face. And there are whole parts of the relic where we can't see the actor's faces. And so... Yeah, when I, when I took a step back and said, "All right, well, I'm starting to identify what I like about these films. Let me go back and look at some of these other films." And I didn't really realize that Peter Himes' work goes back way further than I thought. I mean, I I could remember Running Scared, but I think that was like mid '80s, maybe like '85, '84, or or maybe a little bit later. But th that was my memory of it. So I thought, okay, well, maybe he's done like a film or two before that. Well, he'd done a lot of films before that. And the earliest one that I could find that I thought would be something I'd want to watch was a film called Busting. That was from 1974. First of all, it doesn't matter if it's 1974 or 2024. You're going to call your film Busting? No, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> but it's from 1974. It's got a young or younger Elliot Gold. Robert Blake is in it. Um, and it is, it is clearly a film from the seventies. Like it, it is of that era, everything from the style, the wardrobe, you know, all that stuff, the background, the backdrop of the film it's set in Los Angeles is the, they play two cops who are kind of, uh, I don't know if they're undercover, but they're working cases. They're trying to figure out what's going on with some of the, um, seedier elements of, uh, of Los Angeles, right? It's a kind of a comedy. It's kind of a thriller. It's, it's got a little bit of action in it. But it's one of those things that I feel like now, like this wouldn't be a movie. One, because um, 
it's got some problematic stuff in it. You know, I mean, there is a lot of, uh, you could say it's like homophobic humor. Uh, you could say it's kind of misogynist. You know, it just really, it, it wouldn't play today. It feels like if it were anything, it would be a TV show. And maybe it would be a short-lived TV show. So, I mean, I could say it's not a great film. It's an interesting time capsule to look at 1974. I mean, we're talking 50 years ago. And where things were in terms of culture or, or society, like, you know, attitudes about certain things or certain types of people, right? It's like, that's the interesting part of it. Um, the filmmaking of it, it's not really... It's not that remarkable. And you could say, well, if this was an earlier film for Peter Himes, maybe he hadn't really kind of found the style or his lane or whatever. I, I can't really say I'd recommend it, but it's out there if you if you really want to uh, to dig deep. The next film I saw uh, called Hanover Street is from 1979. It's five years later. It's got Harrison Ford as the lead. And he plays a World War II pilot. This takes place in England. And he meets this woman on Hanover Street. They kind of uh, develop a relationship. It becomes a thing. Turns out she's married to someone that is um, essentially going to be, go on a mission with Harrison Ford. And that mission kind of goes wrong. And so it's one man trapped basically behind enemy lines and trying to survive with the husband of the woman that he's in love with. Whoa. You know, there's a lot of room for drama in there. And it's interesting also with this film because it 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 feels like it's of a different era. Like it came out in 1979. It doesn't feel like this is the way you would tell this story today. It doesn't even feel like this is the way you would tell the story in 1979. This feels like a film that was from an earlier era, maybe like the 50s or something where it's much more romantic and 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 more it it has like a gentler touch with this relationship with these characters and i guess how it unfolds right and i i think the the thing is that while it's a story that you feel like could have taken place or been told maybe 20 years earlier the look of it is now it, it feels more developed. It feels more like I, I feel like this is really a, a good, interesting example of someone's singular vision becoming reality. And that's always interesting to me because you could have someone who has interesting stories, but maybe they don't have a distinct style. Or they have a very distinct style, but they don't generate their own stories. They don't really or both of those. But they don't actually deal with the craft of building a shot, lighting a shot, right? Composing, like moving cameras, all that stuff. And you do have filmmakers out there that do do that. This film, at least, it the best I can kind of describe it, and it's kind of pulling from different things, but it's like if Ridley Scott made a World War II film, if he actually cared about Britain and or actual like romance. And that's not necessarily a slight. That's just, that's just kind of how things are. Like it's that quality of filmmaking, like the, the, the vision of it, the style of it, 
but it's a very different kind of film. It feels like a film from a, an era that's bygone, you know? And it's not to say it's bad. It's just you have to kind of appreciate it on that level. Like, it's not a film, it, it's not a film that seems like it came out of 1979, at, at least in my sense of it. it it's, it's a strange mix, and it's, it's actually not a bad film. It, it moves a little too slow. I think the relationship between the characters, it, it takes a little too long to really kind of get going. And, and, and I'm sure that's intentional. Like it's, it's, it's a very small, intimate portrait of these characters and their relationship. Okay. The film does get cooking though. Once we get into, I I guess it's like the third act when the two characters is Harrison Ford and Christopher Plummer. They're uh, on the plane. They get shot down. They're stuck behind enemy lines. They're, they're basically trying to survive amongst the Germans and they disguise themselves as German soldiers and they're trying to like kind of get out of there, make it back home. And by the resolution, uh, it, it ends in a reasonable and logical way. I, I don't really want to tell you how it ends, but um, it makes sense. The next film I saw was a film that I've always wanted to see. It's been on my watch list forever. And I finally got around to it. Is Outland from 1981. But here's one that was in that range of, you know, late Bond era, I guess. I mean, Roger Moore had already taken over, I think. But here's a film that, here's Sean Connery, and it's a science fiction film. And I didn't know this because I haven't seen the other film yet, but it's also a take on High Noon, which is a classic Western, which, hey, it's coming up, okay? I'll get to it. So to see like, oh, this is a science fiction film with formerly James Bond. And it's in that wave of science fiction films, action films from like the late 70s, early 80s, something like Alien, even Star Wars to some degree. Um, Some of those movies were, they started to take on a certain kind of darkness and a grittiness you know science fiction had gone from the really shiny and kind of sterile visions of like the 50s and 60s and even the early 70s it started to take a turn you know and this feels like that type of aesthetic and so then you work in this whole kind of classic western story or structure to it and it's it's an interesting experiment, let's say. And I like Sean Connery in the film. I think his character of the marshal, or the, he's kind of the new sheriff in town. He kind of takes over and he's investigating these sort of mysterious, kind of gruesome deaths, right? That are happening. It's like a mining colony on, where is it? It's like Io, right? Like the one of the moons of Jupiter. You know, the, the, the one thing that it will strike you if you've never seen it before or if you don't see a lot of films from this era is like there's so much set up at the beginning. Like just the it's not even the opening credits. It's like you just getting shots of the moon, the, the mining colony, the mining facility or whatever. And on every shot and every cut, there's like a, 
uh, a chiron, like a, a, the text that comes up on the screen explaining, here's the year, here's the location, here's what's happening, here's what happened to get us here. Here, you know, it's like, all right, man. I mean, you just tell me half the movie right now in the first three minutes. Like it's, I, I, it's a thing. Like it's a thing that happened in a lot of films of that time. It doesn't really happen as much because I think people kind of wore it out. You know, I mean, even alien does it right. So this was, I, so there's two things about the film, right? There's a lot in it that is, really interesting in terms of the conceptual execution of it, I guess. I mean, if that makes sense, it's like there are things here that are impossible, but they're pulled off in a really interesting way. And and it kind of works for the story, like in terms of the location and how we stage some of these scenes and the action and stuff. But at the same time, there are things about it that uh, those same things, they don't really hold up, you know, like they look pretty aged at this point. And, you know, I mean, (laughs) so Sean Connery, he's a Marshall O'Neill. He's kind of torn between the duty that he's there to be kind of the, the Marshall, the, 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 the person who's overseeing, like enforcing the law or whatever, versus, you know, he wants to be with his family, which is not there with him. So he's kind of torn between his duty and spending time with his family, being a father, being a husband. And it wasn't really an element of the story I thought was going to be that important, uh, other than uh, something's pulling him away from what he's supposed to do right now. But it does become a thing. I mean, there's a, a Francis Sternhagen is in this film and is such a unique um, presence because she's a scientist. I think she's like a scientist, right? That is helping with his investigation, but she's not afraid to take shots at him and to tell him like it is and to shoot him straight, you know? And it's a little bit of a, a, a tenuous kind of dynamic that they have to have because they have to work together for this. It's not that she doesn't like him. It's just that that's just her personality, right? And he's, so there's a really interesting like way that they kind of go at each other. And of course, Peter Boyle is in this as kind of the villain of the thing. And their dynamic is kind of interesting too, because neither one of them, you can see it like they are not going to back down. I mean, there are some things that really stand out as, um, I guess, kind of artifacts from that era. Like They don't really happen in films anymore. Like, you know, Sean Connery is basically counting down like in high noon. I, I understand where all these assassins, hitmen, whatever, killers, they're coming to get him. And when that does happen at the end of the film or towards the end of the film, they show up in a really strange way. <laughs> they're not like aliens or monsters, whatever. they're people. But 
they come in with like a group of new, I guess, miners or workers or whatever. So they're disguised. I, I, I guess this is the idea, but it's like they're all like wearing like khakis and like little button down shirts and little baseball caps and stuff. And it just looks like, oh, what are <laughs> these hitmen? They just shop at Old Navy now, I guess. It's such a weird thing because one is because they could, you wouldn't see it work that way in a film now or maybe in a more typical film. Like, and, and it's something that honestly it's, it's, I like seeing it because I feel like anytime you introduce a villain or, or, um, a bad guy, whether it's like a henchman or whatever in a film, typically they kind of give themselves away, don't they? Like if you've ever watched, um, I mean, even like a classic, like something like Die Hard. Hans Gruber looks like a businessman. Okay. He looks slick. He looks smart. He looks, I don't know, fashionable or whatever. He looks austere. But when you see some of the other guys that roll in with him, you're like, I don't know. You guys don't look like businessmen. You guys don't look like you're supposed to be here right now. You look like you're here for trouble. And like, that's a very mild example, but there are some where some films you can see, like it's a dead giveaway. And of course, I understand it's a visual medium. You have to convey without words necessarily. Here's the bad guy. <laughs> but in this film, I thought it was actually refreshing to be like, oh, wait, the bad guys look like everybody else and everybody else looks boring. <laughs> so it was amusing. And yet at the same time, of course, it kind of goes against what you're programmed to understand or expect. So I don't know if that was on purpose or that was like just, hey, we don't have a budget for like wardrobe for the villains. So we're just going to dress them in everybody, everybody's regular clothes. I don't know. The other thing is. I was looking into this film about how they did some of the, I guess, the outdoor because we're on the moon in Jupiter or whatever. So how, how would they convey this is where we are? So they use a really interesting filmmaking technique. Which, you know, this is way before CG uh, cinematography or, or, or effects that could enhance this kind of stuff. There was this technology or this technique called introvision that this film was one of the first to really uh, show this on the big screen, like in a Hollywood feature film, where it was, I guess, front and rear projection. So you could build a model or a matte painting or whatever and have the actor act or perform in that setting. And it was all done in camera and it was done through projecting part of, let's say, a, a, a background or a model or a miniature. You, you project part of that in front of the actor and then part of it behind the actor so they could like walk through something. And... I mean, the alternative is you build sets that are immense, that are impossible to build. And so this was one, it was like a cost cutting thing, but it was also just a way to get it all done quickly, but also not use any kind of, well, I don't even know if you could really do like a green screen or blue screen back then, like in 1980 or 81. 
So this was probably the best you could get, and you could see it in camera, right? So this would all be done through the lens of the camera. So there was no guessing. There was no work to be done after. And I wonder, you know, I, this is the first I'd ever heard of this technique even. So I wonder how long that lived and if it's maybe even still used in some ways today. I mean, I feel like probably not. Like I think CG and digital compositing and all that stuff has really become the way to do stuff like this. But the idea of being able to see everything that you're going to get in camera as you're shooting it, I'm sure for someone like Peter Himes, if you're a cinematographer and the director and the writer, like you want to be sure, like I got it and it looks exactly how I want. So that was an interesting thing to learn. And, and it did pop up in other films and yeah, I mean, you could look it up or read about it if you want, but I, I thought that was an interesting thing to show how inventive filmmaking had to become as technology changed, as stories changed, right? And this was actually one that kind of pioneered the way, you know? So then after that, um, there's a couple other films that I, I'd wanted to see for a long time, because I remember when these came out. The Presidio in 1988 and Time Cop in 1994. You know, the Presidio, I think I imagined that it was a different kind of film than it is, which, um, you know, hey, that's maybe that's on me. Maybe that I don't know that's necessarily on the filmmaking or the story even. It is a basically a procedural murder mystery thriller, right? The star of it is Mark Harmon, who turns out he's like a legend on television. I think the first thing I remember seeing him on TV doing was, uh, what was it? He played Ted Bundy. I think it was like the Deliberate Stranger or something like that. And that was like when, a, when they used to do like miniseries on TV back in like the 80s. And so to me, okay, I knew Mark Harmon from that, but I also knew him from uh, a couple of other earlier movies I guess he had done. You know, these kind of like 80s comedies that he was in. So, I, you know, I didn't really know where his strengths were or where he was more uh, known until I looked it up after watching this film because he's starring with Sean Connery, who is already, by 1988, like film history, Right. He's just part of the landscape. And then, of course, the, the the third lead here is Meg Ryan, a young Meg Ryan. I think this was maybe one of her first movies. But, I mean, this is a pretty solid cast. And it turns out, of course, Mark Harmon has absolutely killed it on television for the last 30-something years. Because whether it was like St. Elsewhere, which I never watched, but I remember the show, or Chicago Hope, which I also never watched. I was more of an ER guy. Or NCIS, which I think is still going after like 15 years or whatever it's been now. I, you know, Mark Harmon is, is solid there. He's good. And so here, though, it was interesting because knowing that now, watching this film, it's like, wait, this kind of plays like an episode of NCIS or, or a show like that. Or was it the one before that? Wasn't it Jag? 
like these kind of like military crime procedural dramas. This whole film is like an episode, like a double episode of that. And for all of the, the filmmaking and the style of it, I think the, the weak link here is, is not even the performances. Everybody here is great. It's just the story. Like when you realize what this story is actually about, I mean, it starts out with a murder and it starts out with these, you know, just very suspicious things that are happening on this um, military base. You really start to think, oh, okay, we're getting into some really heavy, dark territory here. Turns out it's not quite that. It's not what you expect. But meanwhile, the film, it really leads you to uh, just visually, stylistically, it kind of leads you down that road. And then it says, oh, it's actually this. <laughs> oh, man. That's not where I thought we were going. I'll tell you a couple of interesting things here is, you know, Meg Ryan is in this film and it's a very different look for Meg Ryan. You know, I think from what people mostly expect, like from a lot of the romantic comedies or, or those earlier films that she had done, this was one that looking at it now, it kind of stands out as like, oh yeah, she's kind of, She's kind of aggressive. You know, she's kind of a, she's kind of a hot tomato. And if you know what that means, you know what that means. If you don't, maybe you need to see the film. But what I'm saying is, it's a very different look. And even for Sean Connery, who um, here was a film where, okay, he's taking a turn into something else. I think at the year after, or, or a couple years after, we get The Hunt for Red October, where I'm like, okay, I know this is Sean Connery, but I actually also know that this is Ramius, right? Okay. Well, this is a film that is somewhere in that middle ground. And there's a couple of interesting things here is he's got some real heavy, like emotional beats here because he's not just a character trying to solve this case or whatever, but he's also kind of in conflict with Mark Harmon. His daughter is Meg Ryan, which I don't know how that works, but... He's also a concerned father, all that stuff. And uh, I mean, man, there's even a scene where they get into an argument and he raises his hand at her. And I look, if you know anything about Sean Connery, bro, that's not a look you want to have in your film in the late 80s. Because it is a thing that in an interview in, I think, the late 60s somewhere, he said, yeah, it's fine. If you need to, you know, put hands on somebody, especially a woman, it's okay. And then he doubled down in the 80s before this film came out with, uh, I think it was Barbara Walters, right? Where he just like, yeah, no, I still agree with that. Whoa. <laughs> and then to a year or a couple years later, make a film where you do that. Oh, come on, man. You... It's not a good idea. Like you could have easily talked Peter Himes or whoever out of like, do I really need to go that far with this character, with this scene? <laughs> so, you know, I feel like, well, look, you, you believe what you believe, I guess. And that's where it shows up. So, you know, those are a couple of things I feel like I, they go a, a little bit against what you might think. I don't know if they necessarily make the film any better or worse. It's just, it's interesting things that I saw that, 
at the time. Maybe it wouldn't have quite connected so easily. So I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I'd really recommend it, honestly. It's like you could probably watch an episode of a, of a pretty solid police procedural these days and you'd get about as much entertainment out of it. And you'd probably actually be more satisfied by the ending, you know? The other film here, Time Cop, 1994, which um, I never saw, but a friend of mine, uh, uh, one of my best friends that I, I has since passed away, but you know, for a long time, this was his film. Like, he talked this film up so much. And I really understand it. You know, I just didn't really, one, I didn't get Van Damme. And I honestly don't, I still don't think I do. I mean, even the, the one film that I think I probably would want to watch again that he's been in is Hard Target. And it's not because of him. It's because of John Woo. So here watching this film, I thought, all right, well, you know, I got to put that aside let me just kind of get into what this is about. Like, what's the story? What's the whole premise here? And I got to tell you, I mean, that is actually the best part of this film. And I didn't even know this, but it's based off a comic book or a graphic novel, which was actually really interesting. I mean, it made me go look that up. And now I want to know what that's all about. Because the premise here is so, it's so obvious of, like, look, if you're going to have time travel, if you're going to have the technology or the science or whatever to do it, it can get out of hand real quick. I mean, it doesn't take much. I mean, you can have all these films that show how time travel can can go wrong, whether it's Back to the Future or The Time Machine, you know, a novel from 100 years earlier. You've got all these examples. So, yeah, wouldn't you have some kind of regulation or even like an actual force like a, a police force or or something to to make sure that people aren't abusing or uh misusing this technology or this science i guess it's all fictional of course but it's an interesting premise and if that if you are a time cop if you are someone who has to go back into the past to fix the future or to fix someone else's monkeying with the future like what do you have to deal with like what are the rules right like what how do you operate and then of course in this iteration of the story i mean this character has like a personal connection to some things that are happening and you know it's i i, I just say that the film it struggles or it suffers because of van damme personally for me i just cannot I can't see this guy as this character. And it tries to do enough to work around, I think, let's say some of his weaknesses as an actor, but at the same time, it also tries to like showcase some of his strengths as just a presence, as a performer, as a martial artist, I guess, which I just don't think fit. Like it totally feels like this guy was shoehorned into this movie because he was a known, a hot talent at the time. And people were going to pay to see him, so put him in this. But it, come on, it's got to be a good match. And I just don't feel like this is the right match. And the only thing also that I'll say is that some of its ideas of what the future would be, because it's set, 
in 2004 and the character has to go back to 1994, which is when the film was actually made. So they have to kind of project out. You know, it would almost made sense if it were like, if the premise of the film was instead, hey, it's 1994, we're going to jump back to 1984. That might have been more interesting because you can at least have like a real, you, you have a more cohesive vision of what the film should look like because you know what 1994 looks like and you know what 10 years ago looks like. But going the other way where you, you set the film 10 years in the future and then jump back to today I mean, I think, I think that always gets you in trouble in one way or another. Because you're having to project, you're having to like imagine things that will be. But uh, uh, that's the hard thing about this kind of thing. Unless you set it like a hundred years in the future. If you're just 10 years away, the things you think will change probably won't change. And the things you can't even imagine are going to be the things that change. That's the, that's just how it works out, you know? <laughs> I mean, 1994 to 2004, think about those things. If you were around in that time, like if you remember those years, those 10 years, like how much were things different? And like in 1994, I don't know anybody at that time who had a cell phone. In 2004, only 10 years later, everybody had a cell phone. Whether you had a flip phone or one of those bricks or a Blackberry or whatever, you had one. And the iPhones weren't out yet. But imagine 10 years later, 2014, everybody has an iPhone pretty much, right? Or a smartphone at least. So that's how fast that kind of thing could change. But here in, two, in this movie in 2004, people still using pay phones and regular phones. Like it's not, you know, it was the thing that came out of left field that you couldn't have predicted. Meanwhile, the cars in this film in 2004 what the hell is that? Why are you driving a toaster around? You know? They didn't really change that much in 10 years. Cars don't do that. So it's just one of those things that comes with science fiction on film or even just in stories is like you're trying to project the future. It can be one of those that it takes you out of the story at some point. So the last film I'll talk about here, which was what sparked this whole thing with this interview this is a film called Enemies Closer, and it's from 2013, so just over 10 years ago. As far as I know, or as far as I can tell, this is the last film that Peter Hyams has done or, or is working on. But this was a strange film because it's, it's an action film. It's like a crime thriller, but it's kind of it's it's like maybe spinning one too many plates you know because you've got the i mean the the main thing is the poster shows van damme's face on it which already is like i'm not really i'm not really interested as you watch the film though van damme's not the main character he's not even the second lead he's he's the villain of the film but it's 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 really about these two characters. Tom Everett Scott, he plays a, 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 he's like a park ranger. He's like living out in the wilderness, isolated, kind of off on his own. And he has this run-in with Orlando Jones, who is a guy that's basically looking to settle some scores, right? 
they've got some history with, uh, I think it's like Orlando Jones, his, his, his character's brother or something like that. There, there's some beef there, right? So you got these two guys that are kind of trying to figure this out and, and they're, you know, button heads. Van Damme comes in as this, I guess, um, enforcer for like a drug cartel or whatever. They're looking for a lost shipment. They got lost in this park or this area where all this is happening. So you've got these two guys that don't like each other. They got beef with each other. And yet they got to kind of pair up and work together to get away from these drug dealers. And I mean, I guess that's the whole idea with the title, right? It's like, you know, these guys aren't friends, they're enemies, but they're better than the other people that are chasing them. Okay. I just, there's so much about this film though that, that feels, whether it's the acting, the writing, it's, it's not, it's just not up to par. Even the, the, the filmmaking, some of the visual style of it doesn't feel like this is in line with any of the other films that I've talked about here. Like it just has a very, I want to say maybe a more contemporary style to it, but it also feels loose. It doesn't feel so crafted, you know? So I, I don't really know how to, I don't really have much good to say about the film. And, you know, I don't know if it's, it's one of those things where it was like a favor was done for a favor or, um, it, it feels like there's not a lot of heart in the film. And that sucks to say, you know, but I wonder if that's where we get back to this interview that it seems like maybe, you know, it, Here's the thing. It's interesting that you have someone who is experienced and skilled and has vision, has talent. And for whatever reason, success doesn't come the way maybe you think or expect it would. Right? I mean, it happens for all of us. You try to do your job. You try to learn. You try to be, you know, a good person and all that. And... Sometimes you just, you never, you hit a ceiling, you know? It's just, it's, it's interesting because it's the first time I'd seen a filmmaker that I recognize by name and by their work really talk themselves down. And I, part of it is kind of, kind of hard to watch, you know? Because I personally, I don't like to see that. Like, it, it feels very discouraging. But at the same time, it's like, well, maybe there's other reasons, you know? Maybe there's other things. And I, I, I got to say, I mean, this film, Enemies Closer, it doesn't really, it doesn't sway me in any other direction, you know? It's like, okay, this wasn't a great film. But he's done other good films. And he's got a very distinct style, which, you know, look, that, that's the other thing too is, I feel like, well, this style is not so distinct that he's, he's the only one that does films this way. Like, I think it's just a matter of technique and anybody can copy technique, right? Or I don't say copy, but anybody can find the same technique by maybe they're all influenced by a similar thing in the past or another artist. Right. And so, I mean, you can see like, if you go to cinematographers or, or filmmakers that have done work throughout this era, whether it's someone like Owen Roisman or 
Jeff Kimball, you know, who did like a lot of Tony Scott work. Um, some of John McTiernan's films kind of have a similar style. I think he does a lot more camera movement, but you know, I mean, you can get lost in the weeds of like, well, who's really on whose style, you know? I don't think it's one person that really set the tone and then everybody else just kind of copied it. I don't think it works that way. I think it is more of a, um, of a trend, I guess. But if a trend gets so pervasive, then it is like, this is the way you make a film. This is what films look like. You could say that about films from the forties and fifties, like they all kind of look a certain way. And when you see one that looks different, something like a citizen Kane or whatever, where you're like, wait, what? That, that doesn't look like all those movies from that period. Or even today, you know, you got films that look a certain way, especially with the whole superhero uh, wave where you, you expect films have to look this way to look like a film, you know? And, and I've seen several, I, I've probably talked about several here now at this point on uh, film streak is it, it's, it's strange to see a film that it's like kind of like plucked out of time, even though it was made today or modern day or whatever. But it feels like, it looks like it was from a different time. I, maybe the one that just comes to mind right away is something like X, right? Which is just made, what, a year, two years ago, whatever. But it looks like it was from the late 70s or early 80s. So, I don't know. It was a real interesting kind of journey to go down this road and look at Peter Hyams and his work and try to understand maybe the intentions and the types of stories and like the ideas he was trying to get across, but also like to just enjoy this visual palette that he builds with all of his films. Like I, I gotta say, like some of these films I didn't really care for. I, I didn't find the stories or, or maybe some of the performances that good, but Hanover street. I love the way the film looked. It's a beautiful looking film. Outland, I, I mean, there, there's some of the visual effects that don't really age so well, but otherwise, I mean, it looks great. Even Time Cop, which is a film that I'm not crazy about Van Damme and his work in it, but the premise, the look of the film, even some of this, it's got some early CG effects in it. They don't age so well, but I think the intention is is good that like we're trying to convey things that you can't do practically, right? Okay, got it. All great looking films. And, you know, the ones I mentioned before, 2010, Running Scared. I mean, even End of Days. Oh, you know what? That's one I forgot to mention. Capricorn One. That's one that the premise is so amazing for that film. It's such a, a, a unique take on... I don't know, science fiction or, or really not even science fiction. I mean, it's got elements of science fiction in it. If you've never seen it, it's about a mission to Mars, like the first man mission to Mars. But at the last minute, they discover it's not going to be safe or, or the, like the, the, the astronauts would be in danger. So they, they've built it up so much, they have to do the mission, but they're not going to risk these guys' lives. So... They pull them aside right at the last second and they basically launch the thing, send it to space, 
But the guys stay on Earth and they fake the whole Mars landing. And of course, these guys, they're like, hey, we signed up to actually go to Mars. We didn't sign up to do this bullshit. So they break out. They they go on the run. And then the government is like trying to find these guys because we can't let the secret get out now that we actually faked this worldwide event. And then it's, it's it becomes a, a, a kind of a chase thriller, you know? And it's like, that's not even at all what I thought this film was, but it works. Now, some of the, the action in it is kind of dated. It's probably, if you look at it now, you can see that it's one of Tom Cruise's, I'm sure, all-time favorite films because <laughs> it's got the weirdest, wildest, most dangerous-looking airplane helicopter chase I think I've ever seen. And I say that because like that's Tom Cruise's whole bag now. It's like, you know, I get in airplanes and I do wild shit with them. Or I get in helicopters and I go, you know, crazy. This film in 19, what was it, like 1977 or something like that? When this film, when Capricorn 1 came out, it did it. And it did it for real. And it did it in a way that honestly kind of looks real irresponsible, you know? Now, it's all, of course... Planned and practiced and staged and all that, but it looks wild. So, you know, look, if there's one that I, I forgot to mention earlier, but there's one to watch that has a really great premise, has some pretty interesting acting. I got to tell you, it has OJ in it, which, but otherwise, I mean, the, the whole premise of it is pretty strong, I think. And I'm surprised, you know, this is one that I'm surprised they haven't tried to remake yet. Because I feel like that premise is so strong. And I'm sure there's going to be a point here where it's going to become relevant again. You know, as they talk about now today, like the idea of going back to space, going back to the moon or going to Mars at some point. Right. Like, I feel like this story is going to come back around. It's going to get remade. I just I've got money on it. And of course, now with the technology and filmmaking that you can do is like you could probably really sell a lot of this a lot better where it could be convincing like, oh, yeah, they could actually fake this whole thing. I mean, people already believe that about the moon landing, right? Like we didn't actually do that. That was all fake and all that. So like imagine like 10, 20 years from now, they show like how we could fake it. And it looks like or it looks better than what might actually really happen, right? <laughs> anyway, that's Capricorn 1. I had seen that film. I'm not counting that necessarily, but that was one that I forgot to mention. That's a pretty interesting film. So anyway, um, I just wanted to, to, to go down this road for a little bit. This is probably going to be a much longer episode than normal, but um, if you want to find shorter episodes or stuff about newer films, maybe... Um, if you're here at filmstreak.com, then you're at the right place. If you're not at filmstreak.com, that's where you got to go. And, you know, I, I haven't mentioned in a while, but I just want to remind you, if you listen to this and you're like, well, I, I don't remember what film was that or which, when did I talk about that film? I have all of these. I keep track of them all on IMDb. I have a list. And if you go to filmstreak.com, you can find the link to that list where you can find these for yourself. You can rate them or, or add them to your list, right? 
it's for me, it's just for me to kind of keep track and remember, like, when did I watch this or, you know, what did I rate it or whatever. And so if you find it handy, good, go, go, go do that. Go check it out. So in the meantime, uh, you know what it is. It's January. It's a new year. Go watch something new.